in the first centuries of the church, becoming a Christian radically disrupted every aspect of life. Your job, your relationships, your family. Becoming a Christian required distinct beliefs and distinct behaviors. It set you apart from those around you. It highlighted the differences in the way you thought and acted. The beliefs and behaviors that made Christians distinct in the first few centuries would still make us stand out if we genuinely believed the word of God and acted upon it. And so, as you've seen over the last couple of weeks, what we're doing is looking at the distinctions of, er of the early church and what it meant to follow after God. Today, we continue to see Paul's instructions on how even our bodies should bring glory to God. Last Sunday, we read in 1 Thessalonians that we were to avoid sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians repeats that command, flee from sexual immorality because you have been bought with a price. And so listen to the word of God. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll begin reading at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's come to God now in prayer. Father in heaven, we hear your word, and yet we, we quickly want to justify ourselves. And so Lord, where we are hesitant to confess our sins, Lord, bring us to a place of real repentance where we would admit what we have done, we would turn from sin. Lord, for those who listen today with, a, with doubt that you are who you claim to be, with doubt in the truth of your word, I pray that your spirit would give faith to believe, that we would see the, the power and the truth of, of your scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would change us, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us in the hope of the gospel. So Lord, we come praying in Jesus' name, Amen. Your liberty to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. Now that's a legal summary of American rights that's been a popular saying since at least the 19th century. Your liberty to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. But even as we think about that, we, we're really asking the question, how much can I get away with? Surely anything is acceptable as long as it doesn't hurt you. And we don't merely mean that when we think in terms of 
politics. We, we expand that into other areas. It's my body, and so it's, it's my rights. We, we think about it when, we, when, we, when our culture tells us that you can do sexually whatever you want, with whomever you want, whenever you want. As long as, as long as it happens between consenting adults, I don't care what goes on behind closed doors. That's what our culture might say. And the Apostle Paul understood that, that cultures kind of can be captured and summarized in, in these kinds of slogans. Because look back at verse 12. The apostle was, was quoting a, a slogan, perhaps even used in the church, but certainly used in the broader culture of Corinth. It, it's put helpfully in quotation marks for us by the translator so that we understand this is not the truth that Paul is giving to us. It's the, it's the, the, false, the false lie that the culture believes. All things are lawful for me. He, he repeats it again in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. Now that actually is the kind of slogan that would still work today, wouldn't it? All things are lawful for me. Culturally, that, that would explain much of what, what people want to say and do. But Paul contrasts the, the slogans of their culture with the demands of the Christian ethic. He says directly in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Culturally, you may be told that, that all things are lawful, but, but, but that's not a, really any way to live at all. One commentator says, if everyone claims unqualified autonomy, if everyone says, I can do whatever I want, the problem is, if everyone tries to live that way, the freedom that we chase after, we would never have. Because everyone would be threatened by the freedom of every other person. Because eventually, your fist will connect with my nose. So we can't merely pursue a life that says, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. Because that would be no freedom at all. Paul is saying, use your freedom not for yourself, but for others. Now Paul begins by describing for us the, the purpose of the human body, which we might think, well, I mean, couldn't I just watch a National Geographic, you know, summary? I mean, didn't I learn this in like the fourth or fifth grade? Like, you know, you eat and you, you get strengthened and your, your body moves you around and you've got skeletons and you've got muscle and you, like, you're, I mean, do it. But Paul is saying, he, he knows that culturally, people would look at the, the body and say, you know what, we've got to get past this. That in the ancient world, so many of the religious systems of the day would denigrate the body. That the goal of life was really to get beyond this mere animal existence. To, to move beyond just being a meat skeleton. That, that you are, are meant for more than that. You're this, you're this divine being. You're this spiritual being. And so you need to transcend the, the physical life. So much of the ancient world denigrated the body and said it was unimportant. But Paul is saying, no, what you do in your body matters. Because you are your body. You're not, you're not merely a body, but your body is not just a, 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 you know, a meat container to carry around your soul. You really are a person. Your body matters. You're an embodied person. The world you live in is a physical world, and so what you do in your body matters. And so Paul says in verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. He'll, he'll repeat the command. You heard it in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. And then he, he continues there in verse 18. Not by saying that the reason you should flee sexual immorality is because your body is worthless. 
And so you, you don't need to, to give in to those animal instincts, which is much of what the ancient world would have thought. You need to, you need to transcend this physical. No, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't encourage them to obey the command to flee from sexual immorality by telling them their bodies mean nothing. He's actually saying, no, no your body matters because you were made by God. What, look at what he says in verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He's, he's saying that, that sexual sin impacts us in a way different from other sins. Now, it can't mean that, that, that Paul is, is misunderstanding that other sins would have no impact on the body. For surely he would understand that, that gluttony or drunkenness would have a physical effect on who we are. But what he's saying is, is your other sins, yes, they involve the body, but sexual immorality attacks your very humanity. The, the purpose for which you were made. It, it, it's a rebellion against the goodness of God. Because other sins you commit outside your body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now Paul, he, he makes this point, he, he, that's the conclusion he reaches in verse 18, because in verses 15 and 16 he made the point by talking about prostitution. Which to us, even in our, in our sexually provocative culture, s- still seems like, wow, this is, I mean, if, if Paul needed to highlight something, he shows up in the church in Corinth and he says, hey, th- here's one thing that, that you are getting completely wrong, prostitution. Because yes, while in our culture it would be ac- accessible, you could go find a prostitute, it wasn't, it wasn't every, it's not everywhere in our culture like it was in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, prostitution, cultic prostitution, religious prostitution was was involved in, in almost all of the ancient religions. In a city like Corinth, you could look up onto the hills and, and at certain times of the day or certain times of the year or certain times of the week, you would be expected to travel up there and part of your religious observance was, was involved, being involved with a prostitute. You, we, we see some of the, the ways in which it, the sex-saturated culture was full of, of, of brothels because you can see it if you, if you go visit Pompeii. They still have frescoes that were preserved by that volcanic eruption that that have phrases, advertisements that say, here happiness resides. And then the imagery makes clear what kind of happiness they're talking about. Or, I am yours for the money. Because there was an assumption in the ancient world that, that sex is just about the body. But Paul is saying, no, it's, it's even more than that. In the ancient world, uh, you were expected to be involved in prostitution as, as part of not just merely a religious observance, but maybe even to keep your job. If you were a tradesman, if you were part of a guild, then the way that you, you maintained your membership was showing up at the temple for prostitution. Men and women enslaved as sex slaves for your pleasure. But it wasn't treated as something like our, our culture might try and keep it hidden. Yes, we might have, have people who, who would use a prostitute, but they would, they would keep it hidden from their spouse, keep it hidden from their neighbors or their employers. In the ancient world, no, it was out in the open. It was expected because it was essentially considered amoral, not immoral, which would be sinful or wrong, but amoral, like indifferent. Like, it's, it, it, you know, going to a prostitute is like the same kind of choice of did I wear a blue shirt or a green shirt? doesn't really matter. It's an amoral question in the ancient world. At least they thought it was because of the assumption that, that it was just a physical act. 
But Paul is saying, yes, it is a physical act that the sexually immoral person sins against his body. But, but notice the argument he makes against prostitution. And even the way he phrases the question, they should already know this. Look again at verse 15. Do you not know? Well, of course you know. I've told you already. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take them, take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! And even the, the language, Paul uses an antiquated form of the, uh, of the word there. To, I mean, as if he's pounding or shouting, no way, it's impossible. Never should you do that. Verse 16, or do you not know that he was joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And then he quotes from the very beginning of the Bible, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, even if you are not familiar with the Bible, or, or this is perhaps even a first introduction for you to the Bible, that phrase sounds familiar, the two will become one flesh. Perhaps because you've heard it repeated at, at weddings. But it comes from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. God has made a man, Adam, and, and he looks at, at all of creation and calls it good, except for one thing. It's not good for the man to be alone. Because he was made to be in a relationship. And so God creates Eve, to which Adam in Genesis 2 says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. And then God gives us this instruction in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and, the two, and they shall become one flesh. And then we're offered this description of what the world was like before sin. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So what Paul is doing by rooting his command about sexual immorality, his command to avoid prostitutes, he, he roots it in the very goodness of creation. He, he's, he's not denigrating the body. He's, he's actually telling us, no, because God made you for this joy and this pleasure. Sex was God's idea. It wasn't, it didn't come after the fall. It's not that Adam and Eve kind of looked around and said, well, what are these parts for? What do they do? No, God made them for this purpose. But God has set the, the joy of sexuality within the safety of a marriage relationship. Because your whole person is involved. It's not merely a physical act. It's not merely a bodily act. Your mind, body, and soul are engaged. And that's why in, in today's sort of casual sex culture, or if you're on a, on a campus that has kind of a, a hookup expectation, that, well, you just show up and you put out and and there's not meant to be any relationships, or, or, the, or the lie that you can, you can be friends with benefits. Merely friends for each other's physical satisfaction. The problem is that that's, that's assuming that, that you, those needs are merely physical. But we know that it's much more than that. That there's much more involved. Uh, Lauren Winner at Duke University, she, she translates, she, she explains Paul's words like this. She says, don't you know that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you intended to or not. Because the, the act of sex was a gift God gave to show forth the union of a husband and wife, to make big promises. Pastor Tim Keller writes, he says, sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. That's why sex, the joy of sex, is set within the beauty of a marriage relationship between one man 
and one woman. Because Paul is not devaluing sex by tying it back to the goodness of creation. He's showing us that intimacy and commitment involve the whole person. And and by taking us back to to Genesis chapter 2, to the very beginning of creation, Paul is reminding us that, that God made you. God made you in a certain way. That God created humanity, male and female. That your physical body says something about who you are and who you are meant to be. And in a culture that, that says, no, you, are, you can do whatever you want. You can describe yourself however you want. Your physical body says nothing about you. Your birth, cert- your birth certificate doesn't mean anything. Your sex doesn't matter. You can define yourself any way you want. And perhaps even today you struggle with those kinds of questions. Maybe you even feel like, I, I, I don't feel like I belong in my own body. Then then let not your feelings determine what would be right, but let God's instructions. That part of how you know who you are, how you are to self-identify is by the way God made you. And part of how how you know how your, your sexual desires are meant to be fulfilled is by the way God made you. A man or a woman to desire a complementary sexual relationship. See, don't let your feelings determine who you are but let the truth of God's word. Nancy Piercy has a helpful book called Love Thy Body. And she offers a a quote from someone who struggled with his own sexual identity, struggling to figure out that his feelings didn't seem to match the body that God had given him. His desires didn't seem to, his personal desires didn't seem to equate with the the reality of of who he was made to be. But he says the, the world then told him that they do whatever you want, however you want. You define yourself. He said, but that, that was destructive. He, he says, for me, a far more liberating and helpful discovery was that my sexual identity as a man was already fixed and secure. Because sexuality, in the sense of sexual differences between men and women, is a gift of God to humanity in creation. See, I can know how I'm meant to live because of how I was made, who God made me to be. And yet we feel the weight and the sorrow of living in a world that's broken by our sin. We can look back at our own histories and think, but, but I haven't always followed the desires of God. I might not be guilty of, of these, you know, I haven't, I haven't gone to a, a temple prostitute, but I, but I know my own heart. I know that, that, that when we talk about sexual immorality, we're, we're talking about a big category. Adultery and fornication and, and masturbation and homosexuality and incest and even the, the lust of our hearts. And so we know that we are people who are broken by sin and we can feel the weight of it. But Paul, by pointing us back to creation, he doesn't leave us there, but he offers us hope in the gospel. Now the verses that came right before what I read for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives us a list of sins. Sins that include sexual immorality, but, but, but are even broader and bigger than that. But in, but in listing those sins, he offers us hope. And, and we focus on verses 12 through 20 because of the specific focus on sexual immorality. But, but if you have a Bible open, then look back at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's a judgment that would condemn not only the Corinthians, but each one of us. But there's beautiful hope because Paul continues. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says that was your identity. You were somebody who thought it was fine to walk up to a temple prostitute. You thought that that was just expected of you, that it, that it had no moral weight. But neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. But, but Paul doesn't only focus on our, on our sexual sins. He, he broadens it there with idolatry or with greed or drunkenness. But that's who you were. That's not who you are. Your identity can be found in who God made you to be because God brings forgiveness. You were washed. You were made clean. You were sanctified. God has made you holy. You have been justified, declared by the power of God to be as if you had never sinned because Jesus took your sins from you. And so you've been set free from sin. Therefore, as someone who is free, now you can flee from sexual immorality. See, Paul tells us of the importance of the body because that's who God made us to be. It's rooted in creation. But Paul also forces us to look forward at the resurrection that will come. That because Jesus died and was resurrected, bodily resurrected, physically resurrected, then your body still matters. Look again back at verse 13, where we read that, that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, reading those two verses there, it feels like Paul has made a big jump. It feels like a non sequitur. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality. And God raised Jesus from the dead. It feels like Paul's just throwing theological truths at us that feel disconnected. But the point is, those things are intimately connected. Your body was not meant for sexual immorality. Because God raised Jesus from the dead... You too will be raised. He'll, he'll make that argument explicitly later in this book, in chapter 15. But he's saying now, your body matters. It's not disposable. It's, it's not a throwaway item. The resurrection proves that you will last forever, that your bodily existence matters. Yes, if you die before the return of Christ, then there will be a, 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 a limited period until the return of Christ when you will be disembodied. But that's not who you were meant to be. You were created as an embodied person, an embodied soul, soul and body together, you will one day be again resurrected in a physical body, one that is, that is free from the sorrow and sadness and sickness of this life. And so the resurrection is, is telling us that we belong to God. Our bodies, even our bodies matter. And Paul, verse 15, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't you know that even your human physical existence has been united to Christ? He was raised from the dead and given a body. The Son of God, eternally incarnate in a resurrected body now and forever. Your body matters. You have been united to Christ. And so, 
Paul says, then, then, then can you take what has been united to Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No. No, you can't do that. He says in verse 17, you've been joined with the Lord and so you've become one in spirit with him. Verse 19, then he, he takes the imagery of the Old Testament temple, the place where God came to dwell with his people and applies it to the church. He says in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are the temple of God. President James Marshall is consistently listed as the greatest president. Now some of you are thinking, wait, I don't, I don't remember him from my U.S. history class. James Marshall? It's because he's fictional. But he's consistently listed as the greatest fictional president in, in film or television history. He was played by Harrison Ford in that, in that, that classic from the 1990s, Air Force One. Now, back at the beginning of the, the lockdown, of the pandemic, we as a family watched some classic movies. And, and yes, we threw in a few genuine classics, like 1942's Casablanca or 1944's Lara. But, but most of the movies we watched were from that classic period, the 1990s. All right, when, when all of the greatest movies I'd ever seen were made. Now, in this, in this movie, President James Marshall, Harrison Ford's, his plane is hijacked by terrorists. And he, he, he initially, they, they, and, and I'm going to ruin the movie, but it's been out for like 24 years, so if you haven't seen it all the way to the end, like you had your chance. So his plane's been hijacked, they think he's dead. And then they find, no, no, he survived, and he's going to fight to get his plane back. Now, he defeats all of the bad guys, but, but, but at the end of the movie, he's left with, a, with an unflyable plane that's going to crash, and they have to get him off. And of course, the terrorists have removed all of the parachutes. So they, 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 they attempt this daring air rescue where they bring a, another plane and they, they connect it by cable and they, they, they like ferry people across, like zip lining them into another plane. And so Harrison Ford is the last one left to get across. The, the whole nation is waiting to know if he's survived. As the rescue line is, is pulled into the second plane, everyone holds his breath. And the control tower asks, Romeo Tango Zulu, do you copy? Do you have the president? A dramatic silence follows. You see the vice president in the, in the war bunker. You see Americans collectively holding their breath for the answer. And then the answer is heard. This is Romeo Tango Zulu changing call signs. Tower alert air traffic. Romeo Tango Zulu is now Air Force One. This is Air Force One. The president is safe on board. Because whichever plane carries the president carries the call sign Air Force One. It's the moment in the movie when, when everyone erupts in cheering, a whole nation relieved that the great president has been rescued. Whichever plane the president flies on is designated Air Force One. One, wherever the Spirit of God dwells is designated the temple of God. Where God is present is his temple. Now back in chapter 3, Paul had, had, had used that image and applied it to the whole church. Church, you are the temple of God. And now in, in our chapter, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he, he says... And you individually, even your very body, because God's spirit dwells with you, your body is the temple 
of God's Holy Spirit. And so how you use your body matters. You've been given dignity and, and purpose in creation. God made you. He made you as an embodied person. He made sex for his glory and your good within the confines of a loving relationship of marriage. You have significance in the truth of the resurrection that Jesus has been raised from the dead and you too will be raised. And so Paul then, he, he makes it clear. In verses 19 and 20, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The price, the death of your Savior, the blood of Jesus Christ, willing to die for you, to take your sins from you. You have been bought, you have been redeemed, you are set free from the guilt of your sin. You are, you are removed from the shame of those who have sinned against you. You have been bought with a price. But not set free to do whatever you want, set free for something even greater, to do what God designed you for, to do what God desires for you. Oh, church, brothers and sisters in Christ, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of your word, and yet... We can feel the, same, the shame and the sorrow and the sadness when we consider the ways in which we have sinned against you, the ways in which others have sinned against us. And so, Lord, I pray for your comfort for those who are confused today, for the blessing of your truth to guide and instruct us. Lord, for those who rightly feel the weight of guilt, Lord, I pray that they would turn from sin and find hope in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, we need your rescue. We thank you that we are those who, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, who have been washed, that we have been sanctified, that we have been justified by the work of Jesus, our Savior. So, Lord, we come to give ourselves to him, to use our very lives, our bodies, for your honor and glory. We come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen.